Well, in a town in California, there's a sign, a road sign that says, please don't drink and drive in memory of Amy Wall. Joe Avila lives in that town and he sees that sign multiple times a week. And for him, it's a sobering reminder because it was Joe Avila who killed Amy Wall in 1992 while he was driving drunk. Joe Avila faced charges of second-degree murder, but while he was awaiting his sentence, something happened. He enrolled in a drug rehabilitation program in which he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He heard about the forgiveness that is offered in Christ, and he trusted in Christ. And everything about his life changed. Shortly before Easter in 1993, Joe entered the courthouse and realizing that he can't compartmentalize his faith from the rest of his life, he changed his plea from innocent to guilty. The judge, nonetheless, sentenced Joe to the maximum time in prison of 12 years. And so Joe went to prison. He endured all the hardships and humiliations of prison. But he also was determined to redeem that time. While he was in prison, he shared the gospel with anybody who would listen. He served other prison inmates who were in hospice care. And he also continued to build a relationship with his kids while he was in prison. And then when he got out of prison, he was welcomed home by his church and his community. And one would think that the happy ending was complete. But it was actually just getting started. Because shortly after his release from prison, Joe heard from Amy Wall's dad, Rick. Rick went out to lunch with Joe, and it was a long meeting. Rick was excited that Joe had become a Christian, but he also shared how much he missed his daughter Amy. He shared what he loved about her, and he shared about how he would visit her grave twice a year on her birthday and then on the anniversary of her death. Joe was obviously filled with remorse. But then Rick did something that Joe didn't anticipate. He told Joe that he forgave him before Joe even asked for forgiveness. And then later, when Joe was at an event with Amy's entire family, Rick walked up to Joe. He gave him a huge hug, and he said, Joe, I love you. Joe would remember those words and actions for years to come. In fact, later he said, I killed his daughter. And he was able to give me a hug and say, I love you. And that is a true testament to the miracle of reconciliation. Reconciliation is a powerful thing, isn't it? And it's actually what we need spiritually more than anything. More than anything, our greatest need is to be reconciled to God through Christ. And maybe this morning you're thinking, I didn't know that was my greatest need. Maybe you know that we need to be reconciled to God, but you've forgotten just quite how desperately we need to be reconciled to God. Maybe you know you've been reconciled to God, but you've forgotten how amazing that is, that we have been reconciled to God. Maybe you know you've been reconciled to God, but you've forgotten 
that as people who have been reconciled to God, we now get to take part in the ministry of reconciliation. We get to reconcile others to ourselves and to God. And that's why we desperately need this passage. We need to be reminded of the blessing that we've been reconciled and the reminder that we get to be a part of this ministry of reconciliation. And so here's the main point of this passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. We've been reconciled to God, and now we get to reconcile others to God. We've been reconciled to God, and now we get to reconcile others to God. That also sums up our only two points. Reconciled to God, and number two, reconciled to reconcile. So first, we've been reconciled to God. It's our first point. And we're going to be jumping around a little bit in this passage because Paul sort of jumps around from talking about the fact that we've been reconciled to God and now we get to reconcile others to God. And so if you feel like, wait, I feel like we're jumping from verse to verse, we kind of are, but I think that's actually going to be the best way to take us through this passage. So first we're going to look at the aspects of this passage where Paul talks about us being reconciled to God. And we're going to begin in verse 14 where Paul memorably says, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Now, some context is helpful here. There was a bit of an authority crisis going on in the Corinthian church. Some sort of self-proclaimed apostles had come and started basically bad-mouthing Paul's ministry, questioning his methods, questioning his motives. And instead, they were boasting about their own sort of earthly resumes They were talking about their own letters of recommendations, their uh, revelations, these ecstatic visions God had given them, and various other things. And they criticized Paul for his methods and his motives. And so in verse 11 through 13, Paul is kind of defending his own ministry against criticisms from other self-proclaimed apostles. And what Paul is saying is that, you know, these other self-proclaimed apostles, particularly in verse 13, for we are beside ourselves, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God and a right minus for you. Right there in that verse, what Paul is referencing is these self-proclaimed apostles who would often elaborate on these spiritual visions they had. And they would say, oh, I, uh, God appeared to me and he showed me this and that. And they would elaborate on it. And it was a way of sort of puffing themselves up and to make their own ministry sound legitimate so that they would listen to him and not listen to Paul. And so Paul basically says, look, if I'm beside myself in visions, in ecstatic visions, That's to God. That's between God and I. And by the way, God had given Paul incredible spiritual visions. And actually in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about being called up to the third heaven, seeing things that man is not permitted to tell. But Paul says, look, if if I have ecstatic, amazing revelations, that's between God and I. If I'm in my right mind, that is teaching sound doctrine, the truth of God's word clearly, it's for you. It's for your benefit. And why does Paul make that decision? Why does Paul choose not to elaborate on his visions and instead simply teach what is helpful? The love of Christ. The love of Christ controls him and so it forces him to serve the Corinthians rather than puffing himself up. For the love of Christ controls him and it should control us. Paul is compelled and constrained by the love of Christ and we should be too. We should be compelled by Christ's love to love and to serve others, to forgive others, to be gracious to others, right? 
And how does the love of Christ motivate us to act selflessly for the good of others? Well, Paul tells us, he elaborates, because we have concluded this, the love of Christ controls me because of this truth, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The historical death and resurrection of Christ is always at the center of Paul's theology. And it should be in the center of ours. So have you ever been maybe upset with someone or harboring bitterness towards someone? Maybe you're kind of seething about something they did or said. And maybe even you're having daydreams about, you know, what you would like to tell that person and how you'd like to tell it to them. Uh, kind of playing it out in your mind. We're always the hero in those, de- in those daydreams, right? We always say it perfectly. They have no response. But have you ever had a daydream like that and then suddenly you remember the gospel and all of a sudden that daydream just explodes and you realize, oh, what am I doing? Of course, I, sh- I should be gracious. I should be kind to them. <laughs> I remember years ago when Kelly and I were first married, I was, for some reason, um, really upset with a particular owner of a sports franchise. <laughs> and I was upset and annoyed about some decisions they had made, and I was going on venting and ranting about how annoyed I was and how, you know, deserving this person was of my, you know, rage. And I remember Kelly just asked very simply, you know, how did Christ treat you when you were undeserving? <laughs> And I wish I could say, wow, Kelly, thank you so much for preaching the gospel to me. I, that's exactly what I needed. Um, I don't know if I responded quite, la- quite that graciously. But I immediately felt constrained, right? I, I felt the love of Christ controls me, constrains me. Of co- I mean, the answer is simple. Of course I need to be gracious and kind and forgiving to this person. The love of Christ controls us. And notice Paul doesn't have a vague understanding of what Christ had done for him. He doesn't say for the love of Christ controls us because God's just kind of really loving and really just sort of matters that we know that he's loving. That's really what matters. No, he has a clear understanding of exactly, historically, what Christ had done for him. He vividly recounts the death and resurrection of Christ in his place and in the place of of sinners. And in a similar way, we must get a clear idea of the gospel in our minds if it's going to change our life. We must get a clear understanding of what Christ did for us if it's going to make an impact in our life. Charles Spurgeon said about preaching, actually, he said, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. There's a little bit of confusion in the pulpit. It's going to be very confusing in the pew. Well, a similar way with understanding the gospel. A vague understanding of the gospel will be a vague love for Christ and obedience to him. We must get a clear understanding of what Christ has done for us. And the implications of this verse are far-reaching for Christians. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this and then understanding the gospel. This is motivation for godliness. The love of Christ controls us. It's motivation to love and serve others. It's motivation for self-denial. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him, who for our sake died and was raised. It's not only motivation, but it also constrains us to do what we ought to do. 
love of Christ controls us. And what is the result of being controlled by the love of Christ and realizing that we've been reconciled? Well, in verse 16, we see one result. We see ourselves and others differently. The gospel changes how we see everything, including people. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. See, these self-proclaimed apostles came in touting their outward appearance, their earthly resume. And Paul says, look, we no longer judge people according to their earthly resume. What does your outward appearance have to do with anything? What does your earthly ministry accomplishments have to do with your credibility? As Christians, the only question we should be asking is, are you controlled by the love of Christ? Do you know the love of Christ? Do you understand the gospel? As Christians, that's the only criteria we judge by. Is your doctrine sound? And do you have the love of Christ? Who cares about your outward appearance? Who cares about your letters of recommendation? Is Christ compelling you and constraining you? Likewise, we don't see Jesus from a human point of view. Paul even says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. There was a point in time where Paul saw Jesus from a very human standpoint. He saw him as a teacher. Actually, he saw him as a blasphemer. Someone who needed to be destroyed. But that view of Jesus is long gone for Paul. Paul realizes now that Christ is Lord. And so for us as Christians, we must disregard any of these false notions that Jesus is just he's merely a human person. He's just a great man that lived. He's just a good teacher. He's all of those things, but he is so much more. He is the risen Son of God. We regard others and Christ no longer according to the flesh. But then in verse 17, Paul goes further. We don't just see people differently. In fact, people who are in Christ are different. Paul says they're a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are transformed into a new creation when we trust in Christ and believe the gospel. His spirit lives in us. It begins transforming us from within. We suddenly have new desires. Have you ever noticed that in your own life or in the life of others? When you trust in Christ, all of a sudden you have desires you didn't used to have. Things that you used to desire, you now dislike. Things that once brought us pleasure now bring us guilt. We're still tempted to go back to the old creation, but now we've, we find we're, we're guilt-ridden. That way of life kills us now. It's death. It's the fragrance of death, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2. So we are a new creation. We have been transformed. And not only have we been transformed, we've been justified before God. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 is one of the greatest summaries of justification in the Bible. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is really no end to the beauty and 
far-reaching implications of that verse for us as Christians. This is what theologians call double imputation. What is imputation? Imputation means when someone uh, is credited righteousness or sin to another person. It's, it's imputed to them. So what happens in the gospel is when Jesus died on the cross, our sins, the sins of all who would trust in him, were imputed to him. They were laid on him. It was as if he had committed them, and then he suffered the penalty for it. Our sin was imputed to him, and though our sins were like scarlet, they've been washed white as snow, because Jesus paid the penalty. But not only that. So that's the first half of the verse. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He became our sin. But not only that, Christ also covers us in his perfect righteousness. And that's the second half of the verse. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is what one theologian called the great exchange. Our sin for Christ's righteousness. It doesn't get any better than that in terms of a deal. If you're struggling today or this week that God doesn't welcome you into his presence, if he doesn't hear your prayer, if you're hesitant to go to God in prayer this morning, because of your sin, remember that if you've trusted in Christ, your standing with God doesn't depend on your righteousness today or yesterday or this past week or month. It depends on the righteousness of Christ. Your sin has been laid on Jesus. He paid for it. And his righteousness now covers you. When the Father looks at you, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. The gospel really is amazing news. And look at verse 18. All this is from God. All this, our reconciliation, our great salvation is from God. God has done all of it. One result of understanding our salvation rightly and our reconciliation is actually a growing zeal to want to see God glorified. When we realize that God has done it all, right? He heard our cries. When we were enemies, he redeemed us. He became a man. He died in our place. He even drew our hearts to desire him, without which we never even would have chosen him. He's prepared good works that we might walk in them. He's preparing a place for us to be in heaven with him forever. He's interceding for us. I mean, what else could we possibly desire in our salvation? And yet, what can we possibly boast about? We've done nothing. As one person said, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that Jesus had to die for. And when we realize that, all of a sudden, our hearts will cry out with John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. He's done it all. He's worthy of every ounce of the glory and honor and praise. He must increase. All this, all this is from God. What a glorious Savior. And then we come to the crux of this passage. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. What is the purpose of all this? 
What is the purpose of Jesus laying down his life for us? Why did he take up our sin and give us his righteousness? So that we could be reconciled to God. So that we could know him. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Titus 3, 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But we have been reconciled. We have been reconciled to God. He heard our groans. He heard our cries. He saw our need and he came down and he's reconciled us. And he now lives in us. The point of our salvation, the point of our reconciliation is so that we can know God. That's it. So that we can know God. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 3, prayed this. And this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is eternal life, knowing God. That's the beauty of reconciliation, that we can know God. Paul said in Philippians 3, 7, famously, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing greatness of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. For Paul, there was no cost too great for knowing Christ more. There was no cost too great for Paul to know Christ. He knew Christ. Who knew Christ better than Paul? And he wanted wanted more. I hope that gives you just a glimpse of how great it is to know God. That we've been reconciled to him. And that is the pearl of great price. And this is what prosperity gospel preachers miss. Who prosperity gospel preachers who preach basically trust in Christ and you will become rich and you will get healthy and all these things. What they miss is that the richness, the riches, the beauty of Christianity isn't the things that you get from God. The beauty of Christianity is that you get God. You know God. That's the beauty of Christianity. He might heal you. You might get wealthy becoming a Christian. You might advance in your career as a Christian. You might do better academically because you're a Christian. What does it matter? What does it matter? You know God. You know God. So let me ask you a question a mentor once asked me. Do you know a lot of things about God or do you know him? Do you know him this morning? I have to ask you, do you know God? Do you know God? who parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites walked through on dry ground? Do you know God who is just, holy, and righteous beyond our comprehension? Do you know God whose creativity in making the world 
is beyond our wildest imagination. Do you know God whose mercies are new every morning? Do you know God whose power no one can fathom? Do you know God whose perfect love fills and warms our hearts like nothing else in this world can? Do you know God whose majesty could fill an endless sky? I could go on and on. But we will sooner fill the Grand Canyon by throwing rocks in it than praise God adequately this morning with our words. He is beyond praising. Do you know him? And if you don't this morning, if you don't know God, I'm so happy you're here. You couldn't be anywhere better. But I have to implore you, in the words of Paul later in this passage, be reconciled to God. We are a congregation at FBC of people who have been reconciled to God. By grace, we certainly don't deserve it. But it is the greatest joy in this life, and we want you to know it. Be reconciled to God. Stay after and ask questions. There's no question that you could ask that hasn't been asked by someone in this room at some point. Seek God while he may be found. Be reconciled to God. Believe me, he is your only hope of forgiveness, but he is the greatest joy that you could possibly find in this life is knowing him. So Christians have been reconciled to God, but once we've been reconciled, we are compelled to reconcile others. And that leads us to our next point, reconciled to reconcile. In verse 19, Paul says that we've been reconciled and we've been entrusted with a message of reconciliation. God has reconciled us and he's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Our ministry is a message. Christianity isn't built on the talent of Christians or power or influence. Uh, It doesn't rest on money or innovation. It rests on a message. The message about a person, Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled to God and now we get to reconcile others. And so as Christians, we first must see the implications of our reconciliation on our relationship with others. We're going to talk about reconciling others to God and evangelism. But our reconciliation to God also affects our relationship with others, how we can reconcile them to us. And so Paul actually takes the first few verses of this passage, like I mentioned earlier, to in a way reconcile the Corinthians to himself. And so in 11 through 13, he's going to kind of defend his ministry to say, I love you, Corinthians. My motives are sincere. Trust me. Be reconciled to me. I want what's best for you. And so in verse 11, he starts by saying, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And this is interesting because we learn here that actually having a healthy fear of the Lord is important. This fear Paul is talking about is directly tied to the previous verse where Paul talks about giving an account for everything that he did in his life. That one day all of us, those who have trusted Christ and those who don't, will stand before the Lord and give an account of everything we did. And knowing that, Paul says, I I revere the Lord. I respect the Lord and fear him. Therefore, I want to make the most of this time on earth. Our family, we just got back from a trip um, cross country. We saw a bunch of national parks and we went to Glacier National Park in Montana and we saw a grizzly bear there. And it was interesting because 
unlike this area of the country, seeing, <laughs> we were on a trail out there and you'd see signs that would say, you know, this area is inhabited by black and grizzly bears. And Kelly and I kept thinking, shouldn't that read like trail closed? <laughs> like these things can kill you. And so we were, you know, walking around sort of with our head on a swivel looking for grizzly bears everywhere. And we finally went down a road and we, we pull over and we see a grizzly bear. And this thing's like about 100 yards away and that's as close as they tell you to get. And I wasn't messing with this grizzly bear. These, this thing was massive. It was strong. It was intimidating look. It was beautiful. But I wasn't getting any closer because I had a healthy fear of this bear, right? If, and they even tell you that um, not to make eye contact with it because it could perceive that as a threat. And so a couple times this bear is 100 yards away and kind of looks at us. And I'm like, you know, trying not to <laughs> look at it. I'm like taking pictures but not looking at it. And I'm like, hey, we're cool, bear. I'm just over here. Um, but I had this healthy fear of this bear. And if I didn't, if I didn't have this healthy fear, then I would have disregarded those signs and advice. I would have walked right up to this bear. And then I would have really had reason to fear. And in a similar way, when we know that God is our one and only judge, that he's the only true living God, and we're accountable to him, that should give us a healthy reverence and fear for him, so much so that it causes us to obey him and to honor him and his commands. And we don't fear God because we worry that he's going to act harshly or sinfully toward us. We fear God because we know we've acted wrongfully and sinfully toward him. And he is just and righteous. And yet, we also know that his mercies are new every morning. That if we humble ourselves, if we fear him, and revere him and humble ourselves and come to him, we will find grace and forgiveness. So ironically, the only way to not fear truly in this life is by fearing God and humbling ourselves before him. So Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, I persuade others. Who cares what these people think of me? I, I fear the Lord. I revere him most of all. Um, Penn Gillette from the duo a magician duo, Penn and Teller. Penn Gillette is an atheist, but he said this. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, share the gospel. You believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward? And he says this. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe Everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. From the mouth of an atheist. But he is absolutely right. How much do we have to hate someone to not share the message of reconciliation with them? Fearing God more than others leads to sharing God with others. And if you struggle, as many do, with fearing God or fearing man more than God when it comes to evangelism and loving others, Ed Welch wrote a book called When People Are Big and God is Small that tackles that topic. That's just a, a great resource for that that you could look into. So fearing God leads to sharing God with others. And then Paul makes this statement in verse 11. But what we are is known to God. And really there's two meanings here that Paul's saying. Uh, one, what we are is known to God. The big question when we are trying to persuade others and share the gospel with them is usually what do they think of me? 
What are they going to say about me? What am I to them? Are they going to call me a weirdo? Are they going to call me an extremist or what? Paul's answer is basically, what does it matter? What I am is known to God. God knows that I am acting perfectly logically. I know this good news, just like Pendulette just said. How could I not share it with other people? So these self-proclaimed apostles were criticizing Paul's methods, basically saying he's an extremist, he's, he's a madman. And Paul's saying, what I am is known to God. I have to share this news with other people. Now, there's a difference between people rejecting our gospel because it's crazy and, and being intrigued by our gospel but thinking we're crazy, right? Like we need to be wise and discerning. We don't go about evangelism in a weird way with people. Obviously, we're kind and we're thoughtful and discerning. But what we are is known to God. If people call us a madman or extremist, then, no, well, who cares? But he also wants the Corinthians to know that his motives are sincere. And so he says, what I am is known to God. He basically says, look, we're not trying to puff ourselves up. He says, I'm not going on in ecstatic visions. That's one of the reasons he gives. He says, look, my, my motives are sincere. And so the Corinthians are in this conundrum where it's like, on the one hand, okay, Paul brought us the gospel. His doctrine is sound. He seems sincere and he loves us. And on the other hand, you have these self-proclaimed apostles who are saying, oh, but look at our letters of recommendation and our ecstatic visions and all these things. And, you know, Paul's crazy. Paul's an extremist and he's not sincere in his motives. And the Corinthians are thinking, who do I listen to? Who do I trust? And Paul is trying to say, look, my motives are sincere. And, you know, we actually can relate to that. One of the, there's many benefits of living in the information age, right? There's all sorts of information and um, resources at our fingertips. But one downside is that because we live in a sinful world, there's going to be people who are going to try to build a platform for themselves by saying sensational and divisive things and undermining the sincere ministry of certain pastors or theologians or authors. And we actually need discernment to know who do we listen to when it comes to social media or online. When we hear accusations lodged against people that we otherwise trust, that otherwise have always taught good and sound doctrine and all those things, we need to make a decision, well, am I going to listen to this? And so we need discernment. The Corinthians need discernment. And so just, just a few thoughts for you as you uh, consume content on social media and online of who do I listen to? What if I hear someone sort of critiquing uh, or making accusations against uh, theologians or pastors that I otherwise respect? How should I go about discerning whether that's legitimate or not? Well, just a few thoughts. Look for charitability. Look for if someone is charitable with their thoughts and comments. Look for gentleness. Are they gentle? Uh, Look for um, humility. Sometimes people will go on and talk about, well, I've been saying this for years. It's not a real humble comment. Look for humility. Look for specific statements of problematic theology that they're addressing rather than hearsay or speculation. Beware of heresy based on hearsay. Uh, Beware of people whose livelihood depends on that controversy. If you were to take that controversy away, would that person still have a voice or a platform? Doesn't mean what they're saying is wrong, but just something to keep mindful of. Are they motivated to keep this controversy going or call these people out? Lastly, let your discipleship flow through your church community. Ask your brothers and sisters 
in Christ. Don't just trust what you see on the internet and feel like you have to go it alone. Ask your pastors here at FBC. I've read articles or listened to podcasts because folks had questions before. So if you, see, if you come across something, say, hey, you listen to this, uh, read this, and just let me know your thoughts. Pastors are here to help you apply Scripture to your life and seek to provide wisdom in those situations. So utilize them. So Paul has sincere motives. And one of the pieces of evidence for his sincere motives is verse 13, as we've already shared. He doesn't go on about his ecstatic visions. He just teaches them the word faithfully. And then lastly, in verse 20, Paul gives sort of the main charge of this passage to the Corinthians and us. In verse 20, he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we are ambassadors for Christ. What an incredible honor that God would make his appeal through us, that we would be his representatives here on earth. I don't know about you, but if I'm in God's heavenly council and he's like, we need some ambassadors, we need some representatives on earth, I'm like, great. Uh, Paul, Augustine, you know, Athanasius, you know, and he's like, what about you? I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, no, we are ambassadors for Christ. And I know what you're thinking, I, I'm imperfect. How, what am I doing representing God on earth? We are God's plan A. We are jars of clay, as Paul says elsewhere. But we behold this invaluable treasure of the gospel. And how glorifying is that to Christ, that he would use such imperfect vessels like us to carry forward his gospel, to carry out the ministry of reconciliation as his ambassadors and his representatives. So you truly go no place by accident. Every person you talk to today, this week, every place you go, you go as an ambassador for Christ, as his representative in that place. We've been reconciled to God and entrusted with a ministry. And this isn't just a responsibility. Okay, we've been reconciled. All right, now we've got the responsibility. It is a responsibility. We're going to be held accountable. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, right? But it's also an incredible opportunity to grow. One of the things that's most invigorating to our faith is sharing our faith with others. And I think one of the reasons that's true is because when we see someone come to faith, it is witnessing a miracle. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That means that there is actually a miraculous work of the Spirit in someone's heart when they believe and profess Christ as Lord. And that is so invigorating to our faith. Don't overlook that. If you've talked to a Christian today and you are sitting in a room full of them, you've witnessed a miracle today. We cannot trust in Christ. We cannot go on with him in this life with him apart from the miracle of his spirit working in us. And that's so encouraging to our faith. Very few things are more encouraging to our faith than sharing the gospel and seeing someone come to faith. So it's not only a responsibility, it's an opportunity. We have been reconciled and now he grows us and he grows his kingdom in this ministry of reconciliation. We're God's plan A. There is no plan B. 
Well, Joe, who I mentioned earlier, while he was in prison, became involved in a ministry called Prison Fellowship. And the man who started Prison Fellowship was a guy named Chuck Colson. And Chuck Colson worked for President Richard Nixon. And he was a part of Nixon's infamous group called the Plumbers that went around and basically did all of Nixon's dirty work. And Chuck especially was known as one of the guys who was willing to do anything to win and to put the Nixon administration ahead politically. When the Watergate scandal broke and then the White House tapes were released, Chuck was really at the center of the controversy. The Nixon administration distanced themselves from Chuck, alienated him. They actually sort of made Chuck the main scapegoat of the scandal. And in the midst of this, Chuck was reeling, trying to get his law firm on its feet, and he went to visit a potential client, a CEO up in Massachusetts. And as he was meeting with the CEO, the CEO shared with Chuck that he had recently become a Christian. And Chuck was uncomfortable, awkward, didn't really want anything to do with it. And so he left, but then Chuck, being in the circumstances that he was in his life, became intrigued. And he went back and he visited that friend. And that friend told him all about how his life was empty, he was prideful, he was guilt-ridden, but then he heard the gospel and he trusted in Christ. This CEO friend actually read a chapter from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, on pride. Um, one of the best chapters of any book I've ever read. If you've got some time this afternoon and you own that book, just read. It's called The Great Sin. Just read it this afternoon <laughs> or this week. It's amazing. He read that chapter to Chuck and Chuck was crushed by it. He just realized suddenly the pride in his life, his sin, that he needed a savior. And so he left this friend's house and as he drove home, he began sobbing uncontrollably, so much so that he had to pull the car over on the side of the road. And there, on the side of the road in Massachusetts, not knowing what to say, he cried out to God. And not too long after that, he committed his life to Christ and became a Christian. Similar to Joe, Chuck realized that he couldn't compartmentalize his life with Christ. And so, he did the unthinkable. He went to the judge in the courtroom and he decided to plead guilty for what he had done. The judge showed no leniency and sentenced him to one to three years in prison. Chuck, immediately after the sentencing, faced the press on the steps of the courthouse. And what Chuck said, I am virtually certain no reporter was ready to hear. Chuck said, what happened in court today was the court's will and the Lord's will. I have committed my life to Jesus Christ and I can work for him in prison as well as out. And wow, did Chuck work for Christ in his kingdom. He would share the gospel with anyone who would listen during his time in prison. And then he would go on to start prison fellowship, which has brought the gospel to countless people incarcerated over the last several decades. Chuck had been reconciled. And so naturally, he wanted to see many other prisoners set free from their true bondage and reconciled to God. We have been reconciled. And now we get to be reconcilers. It's so common today for Christians to divide, isn't it? We need to be Christians who reconcile. Reconciliation is painful. I'll give you that. 
It is difficult. But it glorifies Christ. And it heals us. Corey Tenboom, Holocaust survivor, started a, a program um, helping people recover from the Holocaust. And she said the ones who moved on and became the healthiest emotionally were the ones who forgave, who were able to reconcile. So have you written off someone that you need to reconcile with? Is there someone you've allowed yourself to be hardened toward that you need to reconcile with? Reconciliation is difficult work, but not more difficult than Christ's work to reconcile us. He knew no sin, but he became ours. He took it on. He died. And he suffered the most painful death physically and emotionally that we could imagine. He did it all in our place to reconcile us to him so that we can know him and so that we can reconcile others to ourselves and to reconcile others to God. What a glorious salvation we have. What a glorious Savior we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for reconciling us to you. We thank you that you died in our place, that you suffered the death that we deserved so that we can know you. Lord, fill us with the joy and the truth that we know you as Christians. If we don't know you, I pray that you would work through your spirit in anyone's heart here that they might trust in you, that there might be celebration in heaven and on earth. And I pray, God, that you would help us not only to remember that we've been reconciled to you, but help us to be reconcilers to your glory, to the great growth and benefit of our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.